Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Matthew 16 here. We have just left Jesus off at Magdala, or Magadan, where he has arrived having crossed the Sea of Galilee from feeding the 4,000 in Decapolis at the end of chapter 15. Starting with verse, chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees approached and as a test asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Before we get into the sign request, let's talk about historically who these Pharisees and Sadducees were. First of all, John Gill says they were not Pharisees and Sadducees who came from Jerusalem, but they were local Pharisees and Sadducees, and that's possible. However, we know in other places the Pharisees and Sadducees were tracking Jesus from Jerusalem, and I suspect these were the same people coming from Jerusalem. They were the ones that were hardest to deal with. Now, of course, the Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other normally, but they agreed with one thing. They hated Jesus, and that united them. United them so much that they killed Jesus together. Let's start with the Pharisees. Where did they come from? The name probably means separatist. They were probably the successors of the uh, Assyrians, the, uh, the pious, the so-called pious, the party that originated in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's about 168 B.C. or so. In revolt against his heathenizing, that means Grecizing policy. The first mention of the Pharisees is in a description by Josephus of the three sects of schools into which the Jews were divided, and we have Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes. In the time of Jesus, they were the popular party. They were extremely accurate. The Sadducees were the ruling class party. The Pharisees were extremely accurate and minute in all matters pertaining to the law of Moses. Paul himself, when he was brought before the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 23 and Acts 26, he proudly proclaimed he was a Pharisee. There was much that was sound in their creed, yet their system of religion was a form and nothing more. Theirs was a very lax morality. On the first notice of them in the New Testament, in Matthew 3, verse 7, they are ranked by our Lord with the Sadducees as a generation of vipers. They were noted for their self-righteousness and their pride. They were frequently rebuked by our Lord. He spent most of his ministry rebuking Pharisees. They, an interesting fact about them, according to Adam Clark, what I just told you was from Easton's Illustrated Dictionary. This is Adam Clark. He says that the Pharisees believed in a confused way in the resurrection, though they also received the Pythagorean doctrine of metempsychosis, or transmigrations of, of, of souls, reincarnation, if you will. But it was only reincarnation for good folks. Non-believers went straight to hell without having a chance in another body. Now let's look at the Sadducees. The origin of this Jewish sect cannot definitely be traced. This is again coming from Eastern's Illustrated Dictionary. The Sadducees were probably the outcome of the influence of Grecian customs and philosophy during the period of Greek domination. This is 2nd century B.C. or so when the uh, Seleucids, maybe 3rd century, when the Seleucid Empire, which was the Greek Empire, was ruling. It was, a, it was one of the successor kingdoms to Alexander the Great, and of course was therefore Hellenized. Uh, they were located in Syria, the area of Syria, and they at some times controlled Israel. And this is probably where the Sadducees came from. They're first met with in connection with John the Baptist's ministry. They came out to him on the banks of the Jordan, and he said to them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So both the Sadducees and the Pharisees were called snakes, snakes in the grass. The next time they're spoken of after John the Baptist, they're represented as coming to our Lord and tempting him 
This is where we are now in Matthew 16. He calls them hypocrites and a wicked and adulterous generation. They also tempted him, tempted him in Matthew 22 also. The only reference to them in the Gospels of Mark and Luke is they're attempting to ridicule the doctrine of the resurrection, which they denied, as they also denied the existence of angels. They aren't mentioned in John's Gospels. There are many Sadducees among the elders of the Sanhedrin. They seem indeed to have been as numerous as the Pharisees. They showed their hatred of Jesus in taking part in his condemnation. They endeavored to prohibit the apostles from preaching the resurrection of Christ in Acts. They were the deists or skeptics of that age. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. Now, according to Adam Clark, he gives us some more information about the Sadducees. They had their origin and name from one Sadoc, who was a disciple of Antigonus of Socho, president of the Sanhedrin, who was a teacher of the law in one of the great divinity schools in Jerusalem about 264 years before the incarnation, before Jesus was born. This Antigonus of Socho, having often in his lectures informed his scholars that they should not serve God through expectation of a reward, but through love and filial reverence only, Sadoc inferred from this teaching that there were neither rewards nor punishment at punishments after this life, and by consequence, there was no resurrection of the dead nor angels, nor spirits in the invisible world, and that man is to be rewarded or punished here for the good or evil he does. So there you can see they're materialist. They received only the five books of Moses, the Torah. They rejected all unwritten traditions, so they rejected the Pharisees, who of course preserved a so-called oral tradition from Moses to the Mishnah. From every account we have of this sect, it plainly appears that they were kind of mongrel deist, says Clark and professed materialists. So these were not good people. Either were the Pharisees. They, they both of them asked for a sign from heaven. Now, they had already seen many signs on earth. Jesus had done all kinds of miracles, but no, that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted a very unusual and uncommon sight, a so-called messianic miracle from heaven. According to John Gill, for example, uh, you could get the, in Joshua, the standing still of the sun and moon, that would have suited them. Raining manna from heaven, yeah, that would have suited them fine or thunder and lightning as at the giving of the law that scared all the Israelites half to death, something big, you know, mere things like healing leprosy and healing blind people. That wasn't good enough for these worthy gentlemen. We go to Matthew 16, verses 2 through 3. He answered them, When evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. Well, basically, Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to give you a messianic miracle. He never gave a messianic miracle to the people who wouldn't, who kept asking him for signs. He did say, we'll give you the sign of Jonah and rise from the dead, but they didn't believe that either. So what's the point of splitting the sky open with some kind of celestial marvel? Their attitude showed they didn't deserve a sign. He'd already done plenty of miracles. He could have believed other people, were, or they were on their way to belief, not the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, this business about the red sky in the morning is good weather today. The red sky in the evening is bad weather tomorrow. There are meteorological reasons for this, and I was just about to sit down and try to figure it out by getting on the Internet when I found this interesting website that has nothing to do with the Bible. It's a secular website about predicting the weather, a modern way to predict the weather as in the 21st century. And they say it's the same thing today, anywhere, not just in Israel. They give a little ditty that you can figure out the weather. Red sky at night is a shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning is a shepherd's warning. Same thing is in this verse. If there's red sky at night, it's going to be good weather the next day. And in the morning, if you got a red sky, you're going to have a bad day facing you. There are meteorological reasons for it. Look that up 
and study that if you want. I don't know what they are. Too lazy to, to worry about it, actually. It's kind of interesting, though. But the point, anyway, the point is, is that, hey, you guys are so smart. You can, you can, you, you can predict the weather, but you can't predict the fact that the Messiah has come and is about to set up his kingdom because you're spiritually dead. Matthew 16, 4. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. So there, he's basically call him, calling them evil. He's calling them adulterous because they just demanded a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Of course, the sign of Jonah is rising again from the dead after three days, even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, three days and three nights. Then he left them and went away. Now, he's already mentioned this sign of Jonah before. This was at Capernaum. In Matthew 12, verses 39 through 40, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So this is another set of Pharisees and Sadducees. He told the same thing. For as Jonah, he says, continues in Matthew 12, verse 40, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So we know what the sign is. They're going to see Jesus rise again from the dead. Now, this thing about three days and three nights can be a problem uh, for some people, for Western minds. He was in the grave Friday night, all day Saturday, he came out Sunday morning, so he was in the tomb parts of three days and three nights, which is fine because the Jews reckoned a whole day. If you, if, you were, if you went through a part of a day, that was the same thing as saying the whole day, so that's three days. Now, the other problem is nights because he was only in the tomb Friday night and Saturday night, which is two nights, so if we were... Thinking like precise Westerners, we would say, oh, that's three days and two nights. But the Jews, when they said a day, they meant a day, and a, a day and a night stood for a day. So they've already got three days because it's parts of three days. So it's three days, which is the same thing as three days and three nights. That's the way they talked. Matthew 16, verses 5 through 6. Oh, he left them and went away. He's going to cross to the other side now in the boat, in a boat, and go back to Bethsaida Julius. Matthew 16 verses 5 through 6, the disciples reached the other shore, and as I said, that was Bethsaida Julius on the other side. Mark 8:22 is how we know this. It says they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. This was on the way to Caesarea Philippi, as we'll see in verse 13 of our current chapter in Matthew 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and Mark 8:27 says Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. He stopped at Bethsaida on the way, which was on the coast. Caesarea Philippi is up north a little bit, right past Lake Hula, the little lake which is due north of the Sea of Galilee. All right, going back to Matthew 16, verses 5 through 6. Verse 5, the disciples reached the other shore, that's Bethsaida, and they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus told them, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now we're going to find out that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus sort of chastised them for it. I'm going to ask yourselves to put yourselves in the, in the shoes of the disciples and see if you could have figured out what he was talking about. Well, first of all, yeast. He's using a metaphor here. The yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeast in the New Testament is usually, but not always, a symbol of corruption. Matthew 16, 6, this is, which is where we are. He calls the teach, He calls the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says they have yeast, which I assume is the teaching of the Pharisees. Down in uh, verse 11, five verses later, Jesus says, why is it you don't understand that when I told you beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread? 
Luke 12, verse 1, In these circumstances a crowd of many thousands came together, so they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, again we're listing examples of how yeast, uh, how yeast or leaven is bad. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. Telling the Pharisees to quit being full of malice and evil. You are indeed unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast. The holy Christians, the, the godly Christians, the pious Christians are unleavened. But now he says don't get yeast in, in, um, in the bread there in the midst of the holy and pious Christians because that yeast is going to spread. It's going to permeate the whole dough. It's going to permeate the church. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with the old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So yeast here stands for something bad, malice and evil. Galatians 5, 9, a little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. Again, talking about legalism, le uh, leavening the whole church. So that's the general metaphor, but yeast does not always refer to corruption in the New Testament. This is important to remember. Matthew 13, verse 33 says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, leaven, that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. So there the kingdom of heaven is compared, their yeast is compared to the kingdom of heaven, which of course is a good thing, not a bad thing. But at any rate, he's telling the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's telling the disciples to look out for the bad, the hypocrisy, the bad leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now in verse 5, it says they had forgotten to take bread. Actually, to be more precise, they had forgotten to take enough bread because they had one loaf. As we read in the parallel passage in Mark 8, verse 14, they had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now there's some interesting speculation. They, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say they could have carried one loaf in anticipation of Jesus multiplying it. In other words, they didn't really forget to take bread. They just took one loaf, figuring, well, we run out of bread. Jesus will do just what he did in the wilderness in Bethsaida, Julius, when he fed 5,000 in the wilderness in Decapolis, when he fed the 4,000. They figured he'd just do it again. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this. But there's a problem, in my opinion, with this that theory. Matthew five explicit Matthew sixteen verse five explicitly says that the disciples forgot to bring bread. Mark eight fourteen says they had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. So it sounds like they just packed one loaf and forgot to take enough. Now the problem with that is is why would they remember one loaf and then not think about more loaves. You would think the one loaf would remind them that they need to take more. Well, John Gill speculates that maybe they forgot because they were listening closely to Jesus' teaching on the Pharisees and Sadducees and just absentmindedly took one loaf and forgot the rest. Or it could be they were planning to get more and Jesus left suddenly and they only had one loaf at the time he left. But at any rate, they only had one loaf as they got in the boat and went back east across the Sea of Galilee, northeast to Bethsaida. Now, Jesus told them to watch out for those Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees. This proves that he did not have a super spiritual attitude about his enemies. He didn't say, well, just pray and have faith. Your enemies can't touch you. Just have faith, brothers. No. He used natural means to avoid his enemies. And that's the thing. You're looking at what Jesus did. He was operating as a man. He was the Son of God, and he did miracles all the time. But still, he had to worry about people catching him and killing him, and they eventually did kill him. So he was operating as a, as a man. This was a great adventure story these, deci these disciples were on. Great adventure story. Because they didn't have the automatic supernatural deliverance whenever something went wrong. Matthew 16, verses 7 through 8. And they discussed among themselves, that's the disciples, we didn't bring any bread. 
And the reason they're discussing about not bringing any bread because Jesus had said, Beware of the leaven, the yeast of the bread of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, of course, leaven reminds one of bread. And so they said, well, we don't know what he's talking about, but it must be about those Pharisees because they were so particular about leaven and how you use leaven and when you can have it and when you can't have it. He must be talking about leaven. That's kind of somewhat reasonable, although Jesus responds when he hears about the discussion, he might have overheard them, but he heard about it, and he says, aware of this, aware of this discussion in verse 8, Jesus said, you of little faith, that's one of his favorite expressions, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Now, to defend the disciples, they didn't bring enough bread, and so it might be a logical thing to talk about not having any bread, and plus the Pharisees were so picky about the about their traditional rules about how you handle leaven, that they might have been thinking about the leaven of the Pharisees having something to do with all their rules about how to use leaven. But Jesus doesn't cut them any slack. I'm telling you, Jesus had high expectations. He's always telling them, you of little faith, like Peter he gets out of the boat, starts to sink, you of little faith. <laughs> so, um, John Gill makes the point. He says that maybe they were worried. They were worried that they didn't have enough to eat. Jesus had left the job of providing necessities to his disciples so he could teach and pray and not have to worry about logistics, and the disciples had screwed up. And so the disciples were feeling a little bit guilty about it. So you see, there are some reasons why they were talking about that, the possible reasons why they were talking about bread rather than understanding Jesus' main point, which is that the Pharisees and Sadducees were evil. Now, when Jesus became aware of this discussion amongst the disciples that they hadn't brought any bread, it could have been from Jesus' omniscience because he was God, or it could he be just overheard them. No way of knowing for sure. Not only did Jesus tell Peter when he was walking on the water and sinking, you of little faith, and not only right here did he tell his disciples, you of little faith, he also told the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verse 30, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, in other words, the grass of the field has these pretty flowers all over it, real beautiful, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? In other words, you're here, you don't have any health insurance, you don't have any old aid pension, you're living a hand-to-mouth economic, economic existence, and what are you worried about? If the grass of the field's not worried, why should you be worried, you of little faith? Jesus loved to point out that we have little faith, and I would suspect that all of us, being human beings, are just like these people back there in the first century A.D. We have little faith, and it would be nice if our faith was bigger. Now, it could be that Jesus might not have been saying this in a harsh tone. He could have just been saying in a matter-of-fact tone, or, uh, hey, you have little faith. Why are you disgusted among yourselves? You don't have bread. Don't worry about it, you have little faith. Kind of neutral. Or it could have been a tone of incredibility. What? You of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves you do not have bread? <laughs> I don't think he was too harsh with his disciples. One other fact that factor or, or fact that might be used to rehabilitate the disciples a little bit is that the fact that yeast was very rarely used among Jews to refer to doctrine. So when Jesus said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, the Pharisees weren't used to hearing that kind of metaphor. But at any rate, the general opinion is his disciples were pretty stupid about this. So I mean, let me give you the general opinion. Jesus was earlier tried by the stupidity of the Pharisees. Now he's tried by the stupidity of the disciples, according to John Gill. Gill says it's hard to believe disciples would think he would warn about so petty a subject, about how the Pharisees were using leaven. He was discussing the great principles of the kingdom of God, and his disciples were talking about bread. And in Mark, the parallel passages, we see 
nine questions following each other in rapid succession. And here in Mark's Matthew 16, we see five questions. These questions following each other in rapid succession, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, show how deeply he was hurt at this want of spiritual apprehension. I don't know. Those poor disciples, boy, I tell you, they... It was hard to be at Jesus' disciples, really hard. But boy, were they privileged to see the establishment of the kingdom of God. Matthew 16, verses 9 through 12, Jesus continues talking to the disciples. Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it you don't understand that when I told you beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the yeast in bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the connection is with feeding of the four and the five thousand and the four thousand, and what that's got to do with the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but I think what Jesus is pointing out is, I just did two humongous miracles in front of you. I'm talking about big stuff here, kingdom stuff. We're not going to be talking about yeast we're going to be talking about stuff just a little bit more serious. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Caesarea Philippi is north, almost directly north, a little bit northeast of the Sea of Galilee. If you cross the Sea of Galilee, you land at Bethsaida on the shore, then you go straight up the Jordan River, you get to Lake Hula, and then take the road right below the mountain range there in the in the valley there and you end up at Caesarea Philippi. Now I've been here before on a trip to Israel. Lake Hula is now dried up. It's a marsh. Modern Israel needed the water and so they sucked it all dry. Caesarea Philippi is out in the boondocks. It was a Roman town at one time named Caesarea Philippi by Philip the Tetrarch, Herod Philip II, one of uh, Herod Antipas's one of his brothers, built Caesarea Philippi. It was called Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it from Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. But Caesarea Philippi, or is now called, it became known as Peneus because it became a pagan place with, with Greek gods there, the Greek god Pan. And, we, and you can still go there and see these Greek statues, these Greek gods there, which is amazing to me. And then Peneus got changed into Banyas. As the, as the word changed over the centuries. So I think now, and I'm, I know now it's called Banyas, and it's very isolated. You can see a little bit of water coming to where the Jordan River starts, and there's grottos there in a cave. It's worth going to see, I think. But Caesarea Philippi is famous for the events that are about to happen here. By the way, this Herod the Tetrarch, he was not the Herod that was married to Herodias, the woman who asked for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. That was Herod Philip I. Herod Philip II is who built this city. That was the other half-brother. He was the Tetrarch Philip to the east of the Sea of Galilee. He is said to be the only good son of Herod the Great. And he had a ton of sons, and he was the only good one, so he was a good guy. Now, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He does that a lot. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm going to read to you a description which I gathered from various Internet sources. I'm just going to read it, and you, you'll get an idea as I go through here. Let me just summarize it. The idea is the Son of Man is a messianic title. It doesn't sound like one because Son of Man sounds like a human title, but actually it's to emphasize his divinity, his messiahship. So let me read this. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Many have said that Jesus used this phrase to emphasize his humanity. The Jewish idiom used Son of to show a close and intimate 
connection with. Therefore, a son of man is someone who is human, who has humanity. There is nothing wrong with this idea as long as one does not use it to detract from Jesus' divinity. After all, Jesus uses the phrase of himself when he forgave sins in Mark 2, verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, says Jesus in that passage. However, ironically, the phrase Son of Man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. He got the phrase from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, quote, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Ancient of Days is God. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So there's the Messiah right there about to get his kingdom. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The Son of Man was presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. But we know even more than we can get from the context. Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exile, which started 587 B.C., in Old Babylonian, the language, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, remember Daniel's over there in Babylonia and Persia later, later during the exile. So when the prophet Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one like a son of man is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. So there, see, he's, he's making a claim to being a Messiah. Son of man is essentially the same as son of God in this context. In the New Testament, no one called Jesus the Son of Man with the exception of Stephen as he was being stoned in Acts 7. Jesus used, Jesus used it of himself all the time. He is recorded as doing this about 90 times in the Gospels. So every time he used it, he was essentially saying, I am God and I will, I will inherit a kingdom and have dominion forever and ever. It is debated whether the Jews in Jesus' day actually were using the phrase Son of Man as a messianic term. But regardless of how the Jews used the phrase, Jesus himself, at least, initiated the use of the phrase as referring to the divine Messiah, if he didn't appropriate a phrase already already in use. So just to summarize all that, son of man equals son of God equals God. He was saying, who do people call, you know, I'm God. Who? What are people saying about me? Now, when did Jesus ask this? This could have been in, on the way to Caesarea Philippi, actually not in the city, because at Mark 8, 27, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So they are, they're walking up from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked this question. Now, why is Jesus going up here? He's probably trying to get away from the crowds again, trying to go far to the outskirts of the kingdom to train his disciples and to tell them that he's about to die, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. He was seeking relief not only from the multitude, but even from the twelve, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and the Brown. How do we know this? Well, Brown, uh, J Jameson Fawcett and Brown, look at Luke 9:18, the parallel passage. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? So Jesus apparently had been praying and come back from his prayer and asked the disciples. Let me give you a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. His spirit, burdened, sought relief in retirement, not only from the multitude, but even for a season from the twelve. He retreated into the secret place of the Most High, pouring out his soul in supplications and prayers, with strong crying and tears. On rejoining his disciples, and as they were pursuing their quiet journey, he asked them this question, Who do men say I am? Now why did Jesus ask the disciple this question? Here's some options. First of all, maybe, he didn't know what the people thought of him, and he was generally wants to know. Uh, Gill rejects that. I don't believe it either. Another option, he's trying to get his disciples to correctly profess that Jesus was the Messiah. As we see from the answer a little bit in the next verse, 
the people didn't have a clear idea that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus certainly wanted his disciples to know that he was the Messiah. He was not John the Baptist come back again. He was not a prophet. He was not Jeremiah. He was not Elijah. He was the Messiah, and he wanted them to know. So he's trying to confirm and build their faith. He's trying to contrast the confused idea of the crowd with the clear idea of the disciple. Now, the fact that the the disciples, uh, excuse me, the people said that were thinking that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead or Elijah or Jeremiah, it shows one of two things. They either believed in reincarnation, transmigrations of the soul, or they believed that these Old Testament figures and John the Baptist or John the Baptist were resurrected from the dead, one of the two. Remember, the Pharisees apparently believed in reincarnation, so that's not beyond the scope of credibility that they might have actually thought that Jesus was a reincarnated soul of John the Baptist, or they might have just thought that John the Baptist came back from life. Matthew 16, verses 14 through 16, and they said, this is the disciples answering Jesus as to who they thought, who the crowd thought that Jesus was, and they, the disciples, said, quote, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, Jesus responds, but you, he asked them, Jesus asked them, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Adam Clark says he's emphasizing this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Kind of like that. I don't know how he knows that, but it's, it's a reasonable assumption. Now, saying that he was Elijah actually is pretty, is sort of natural because he was, Elijah was predicted by Malachi. In fact, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah, Matthew 11:14. If you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to come. Jesus was referring to Malachi 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So that wouldn't, that's not such a bad guess. Jeremiah might have been a good guess, too, as to who Jesus was, because the Jews thought that Jeremiah was the prophet that Moses prophesied of in Deuteronomy 18.15, which is a very famous passage. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Well, Jesus, of course, was the fulfillment of that, was the prophet. But if the Jews thought that Jeremiah was the prophet instead of Jesus, it would probably be logical they'd think that maybe Jesus was Jeremiah. And there was a likeness between Jesus, the man of sorrows, and Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. So they might have got it confused. And then some of the people said it was one of the prophets. The people weren't willing to hazard a particular guess, so they just guessed it was one of the prophets. So obviously Jesus was some big prophet guy, big religious figure coming, but they did not say that he was the Messiah, which of course is what he really was. Why did some people not guess the truth that Jesus was the Messiah? John Gill speculates it's because he was too poor and weak to fit the generally prevailing notion of the Messiah. They couldn't imagine this weak person throwing off the Roman yoke, starting a political revolution. Now, Peter, of course, answered first, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is his famous confession at Caesarea Philippi. Now, he answered first, which goes with his reputation of being zealous. Notice what he did not say. He does not say, scribes and Pharisees, the rulers and the people are all perplexed, and shall we, unlettered fishermen, presume to decide who you are? Everybody else is confused about it. Why, uh, why do you expect us to be clear? Well, Jesus expected a lot of his disciples. He expected them to know who Jesus is. I mean, if you're going to go out and preach the gospel, you better know who Jesus is. You have to. Jesus said, you are the son of the living God. This, of course, is to distinguish God from the dead pagan idols. There's a living God, then there's dead idols. So, and again, the whole point of all this exercise, Jesus is trying to get his disciples to know 
that Jesus was really the Messiah. He's trying to prepare them for the his crucifixion and the persecution is coming. Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, Jesus probably took Peter's answer for the answer of all the twelve. And the twelve probably agreed with Peter. I don't think there's any question that the disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Can't prove it, but I just assume that's so. Simon is the son of Jonah in John 1.42. It says he's the son of John. And he brought Simon to Jesus, Andrew. And when Jesus saw him, saw Simon Peter, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. So Simon Peter Cephas was the son of John. Why did Jesus mention John here, Peter's father? Probably because Peter's father was unlearned, a simple fisherman. And Jesus is saying, Look, you could not have learned your confession from your earthly father. You couldn't have learned that he was no rabbi. The only way that you could have this revealed to you is through my Father in heaven. By the way, is there any way that we can know the kingdom of God except unless the Father desires to reveal it to us, as he says, I think it's in Matthew 9? No. It has to be re revelation from God the Father before you go believe in Jesus. It's not, oh, I choose Jesus. I'm lost in my sin. I'm dead in my trespasses. And all of a sudden I say, well, I'm going to choose Jesus. And woo, now I know that I, that I believe. No. He's got to enlighten you first. He's got to reveal it to you first, just like he revealed it to Simon Peter, and then you're going to believe. Matthew 16, verse 18. All right, this is the famous passage where Jesus says that he's going to build his rock on, where he says that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. A lot of theology, a lot of controversy, so I'm going to have to stop it here. We'll take it up next video. Hope you enjoyed this one. Oops, sorry about that. I meant to say next audio.